This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, it's so great to be back with you. Thank you so much for giving me the time to get away and to be able to relax. And I've been chomping at the bit for us to be able to jump right back in. And so I just want to start with a big question, uh, one that I'm sure we all have answers for. What does it mean to be whole? What is wholeness? What does it mean truly when we say, I want to be whole, right? That's a phrase that we use all the time. You hear it thrown around when people are dealing with hard issues. Uh, Most of the time, or if not all the time, it's a desire. It reflects a desire for wholeness. I just want to be whole. Well, what does it mean? Webster's defines wholeness as the state of forming a complete and harmonious whole, unity. A secondary definition, the state of being unbroken or undamaged. So let's word the question this way. What do we do when we feel, when we don't feel whole? How are you prone to act whenever you don't feel whole, whenever you don't feel complete? What do you do when you feel broken or damaged? You, probably like me, we look for ways to make ourselves whole, right? And that can be a healthy thing. That may not necessarily be something unhealthy to look for ways to feel whole again. Right. I mean, if 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 we uh, if we are looking for physical health because maybe we feel some damage in our body, we look for healthy ways. And let me just tell you that some of the unhealthy ways oftentimes fall along two kind of two categories. One is false certainty and the other is untethered doubt. That's typically where some of our unhealthy habits will go when we're searching for wholeness. We'll respond with a false certainty, this idea that maybe I don't have the facts, but I'm acting as if I do, and I'm acting as if I know what is happening or or I know what's going to make me feel better, so I just stand on that unwaveringly. Or there's this untethered doubt. I don't know if there are any answers, so I'll just accept any and all of them as the wind blows, right? That's some of the unhealthy ways. But again, the healthy ways, if my body is broken, it needs to be made whole. So I look to medicine and I look to doctors to make myself whole. Some of you know, uh, five years ago, uh, I was uh, trying to impress my kids and began to do flips on a trampoline. The flips were dope. The landing, not so much. And uh, broke my ankle. First time I broke anything. Played sports all my life. Never broke anything before. Ankle's broken. I'm really running through a really difficult time. What did I have to do? I had to go to a doctor. I had to eventually get surgery because my body was not whole. What does wholeness feel like when physical damage happens? Wholeness feels like the body functioning the way it was designed. And so, uh, but, but now the unhealthy approach would have been false certainty. I'm okay. I'll just let time run its course. The body's going to heal itself. It'll be fine. Or untethered doubt. You know, the body's a funny thing. No one really knows what will happen. So I'll just kind of try a bunch of different things and see what sticks. The, the, uh, maybe sometimes there are situations in which I might feel lonely. 
Feeling lonely can definitely feel, uh, a, a, can feel like a lack of wholeness. I want to feel whole. I want to uh, feel uh, like I'm a part of a community. And so what I, what I may do is I'll look to my family, friends, romanced in order to find companionship, which isn't bad, right? Because wholeness, in this case, feels like I'm not facing life alone. So that's not a bad thing, right? I, God told us we weren't meant to be alone, right? We were meant to do things in community. But here's what the unhealthy approach could look like. Unhealthy approach, when we're talking about false certainty, I don't need anybody else. I'm built to be an island, and I'm better for it. My safest bet is to be a community of one. Or untethered doubt. I'm not sure who will stick around, so I'll just be with whomever uh, whoever will stick around and, and not leave me uh, alone. Whoever makes me feel like I'm not alone, I'm going to just hang out with them. And if, it, if they end up leaving and somebody else seems like they're going to be around for the long, I'll just stick around with them. And I'm wavering back and forth, right? There's this untethered doubt. I doubt that anybody can really truly stick around and I don't really know how to tell the difference. So I'll just stick with the one who seems to stick with me. And if I'm dealing with emotional trauma and I'm lacking emotional wholeness, I look for ways to live with it and not be held hostage by it. That's a healthy way, right? I go through therapy. I, I build friendships based on deep emotional intelligence and sharing deep, real transparency. But the unhealthy way, if I'm taking the false certainty route, I go, I, I, uh, it, it wasn't that bad. I, I need to just kind of suck it up. I need to toughen up. I need to be strong. Only weak-minded people uh, remember these hard things or only weak-minded people feel these emotional reactions. So I've got to find a way to, to stomp out this emotional reaction because that's a sign of, of weakness. That's false certainty. Then you've got untethered doubt. I don't trust that I can be safe with anyone. So I'll just create relationships with anybody who will help me temporarily escape my emotional trauma. So if I can just find temporary escape here, I'll do it. Because feeling better, at least momentarily, is wholeness enough. So, with, And these are just a few examples, but the bigger question is, how should our faith inform our tendency to seek out wholeness when difficulties and trials occur? Or how does our tendency to seek out wholeness during difficulties and trials impact our faith? Those questions can best be summarized this way. What does it mean to be spiritually whole? What does it mean to be spiritually whole? Well, today we're kicking off our series in the book of James. It's called Faith Works. James, his main focus here is calling those who claim Jesus as their Lord to genuinely live out their faith and to be spiritually whole in all areas of our lives. Now, why do we call this faith works? Well, in many ways, uh, we were thinking through ways to, to convey some of the major themes in the book of James. And one of the thoughts that came to me as, as we were pre preparing for this, I grew up in Detroit, the Motor City, and I had uh, the incredible opportunity during my freshman year of college as an electrical engineering major. I got a chance to go work at the engineering department for General Motors and their headquarters down in Detroit. I got to work in several plants. And I remember going to one of the plants where they made uh, Cadillacs. And I got to see the beginning and ending process for uh, the Cadillac Escalade. 
Now, remember, when you think about an assembly line, you'll have many parts, right? Many things that are happening, many machines that involve heat, tension, turning, physical shaping, and shifting. And what comes out on the other end? The expected finished product that escalates on the end. What the, the idea that James gives us is really, in many ways, as a believer, we are all part of, if you will, a company or an organization. Let's call it Faith Works Inc. And you start out one way and you go through the conveyor belt, you go through the assembly line process, all of the changing and the turning and the heat and the tension and the shaping and the shifting happens. And you could almost hear the tagline here at Faith Works Inc. You won't be the same as when you came. This is the picture we're seeing in James. This is what it means to truly walk in faith. What does it mean to attain or to uh, strive for what it looks like at the end of the assembly line? This book is a very practical book, which is why we're using a very practical example. What's interesting about the book of James is that much like the wisdom books of the Old Testament, books like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, James is viewed as the wisdom book of the New Testament. Many of the uh, the wisdom books of the Old Testament constantly refer to wisdom and what wisdom looks like. James talks about wisdom here more than any other New Testament author. In many ways, James is kind of that Psalms or Proverbs of the New Testament. And much like those wisdom books in the Old Testament, James does not candy coat anything. He tells it like it is. And he confronts us with areas of our lives that are not spiritually whole. These are the areas that need to be changed. These are the areas that need to be reconfigured at the, the assembly line at FaithWorks, Inc. So let's read what James says to us about spiritual wholeness. We're going to read James chapter 1. We're just going to read the first eight verses. And then we'll talk about what, uh, what spiritual wholeness looks like according to James. James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Those, those eight verses have a lot in them, and we won't be able to cover everything there, but, but it is interesting. The way that James opens up this letter, the way he opens up this letter, just the very first few words should tell you something about James and what's going on, right? Because what, listen to how James describes himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we know about James here? Now, he doesn't make this claim here, but the majority of uh, biblical scholarship all seems to agree that this James is the brother or half-brother of Jesus. This is James, 
most likely the brother of Jesus. Now, what do we know about Jesus's brothers? Well, we can look at some of the earlier gospel accounts. His siblings didn't really even believe him. They got annoyed with him. They got frustrated with him. They thought he was very unwise. They thought he was impractical. They had issues. And so you could see they were getting annoyed. They They were irritated. James was one of those brothers. And what we know is that James eventually went from unbeliever to believer to a leader of the church in Jerusalem. How do we know James likely wasn't even really close to Jesus during that time? Because remember when Jesus was on the cross and Mary is having to be cared for because Mary continued to follow her son. None of the other siblings were around at that time. That's why Jesus turned to the disciple that Jesus loved. He went to uh, John and told John, care for Mary as your mother now. James was nowhere to be found. So what do we know here? Something occurred. Most likely the resurrection of Jesus is what turned James' heart, much like he turned many other believers' hearts. And James begins to, again, become a believer and starts leading this church in Jerusalem. So that's who this letter is written to. This church in Jerusalem, the resurrection changed his heart. That's why James calls him Lord here. Now, here's the other thing. He never mentions his familial connection to Jesus. I think that's interesting. It's a real sign of humility. Why? Because James, he wants the strength of of who Jesus is alone to be compelling for the people, more so than his own relationship to Jesus directly, his own familiar relationship. He basically is saying, I don't want you to just trust me because of my connection to him as his brother. I want you to trust who he is because of the authority of his life and his death and now his resurrection. I don't, in other words, I don't want you to just trust him through me because you trust me, you trust him. We got to be careful about that, right? It's not enough to just be like, well, I'm really close to the person who discipled me so I can now trust Jesus. But if the person that discipled me ends up failing me somehow, all of a sudden I don't trust Jesus anymore. Got to be careful about that. You don't, you can't hold hands with someone holding hands with Jesus and then think you're holding hands with Jesus. It's important to be directly connected to him. And James really wants to ensure that these folks are having a true relationship with Jesus and he doesn't want his story to get in the way. So he removes that altogether. It's an incredible picture of humility and it really is a wise way to function. And then he says to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, what does he mean by that? Well, this, again, is the the church in Jerusalem. These were Jewish Christians. Whenever you see the 12 tribes that are dispersed, oftentimes that was a phrase, kind of a moniker that would always describe the people of God. And so he's talking to the people of God, these new Christians who are uh, isolated, have been persecuted. They have uh, been run all over. They're in hiding in many ways. They're scattered all over. And they're probably dealing with a lot of uncertainty, dealing with a lot, a lack of wholeness, and they're seeking out what does it mean to be whole right now. So think about that. James is talking to these people who are on the run, in hiding, wondering what's happening next. They saw their Savior die. They know that he's resurrected, but they're still waiting to see evidence that things are going to get better. They've been separated from family members. Some of their family members have been killed or have been in prison. Some of them may be killed. They themselves may be killed. They don't know what's going to happen. They're, they're scared. They don't have any real societal representation. The Romans aren't protecting them. They don't know what's going on. They're trying to figure out, God, where are you? You ever been there? 
Hey, I expected this or I prayed, God, that this would happen. I follow you. I'm serving you. I'm trying hard to, 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 to embody your heart. I'm trying hard to love people well, and things are not going well for me. There are things that I've been praying for that have not happened. There are expectations that I had that I just thought, I can't see any reason why, God, you wouldn't bless me here, and yet it's not here. Where are you? This is who James is talking to. He's talking to you. And what does he say to us? Verse two, consider it great joy. The old King James says, count it all joy, right? Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Stop right there. Consider it joy to deal with trials and tribulations and suffering. Let me ask you this question. What brings you joy? Just be, just be honest. Be real. What really brings you joy? Your list is going to look like mine. Most people are going to have a very similar list, right? Something that says something like, what brings me joy? Landing that job. Spending time with loved ones. Getting married. Having children. Getting away for a holiday. Getting out of the house, especially during a pandemic. What are various trials? James is opening it up to include every kind of trial and suffering that any believer can undergo in this fallen world. There was an expectation that I had. It is not being met. I had an expectation of safety. It was not met. I had an expectation of being loved well by people who were supposed to care for me. It's not being met. I had an expectation of real justice in society. It's not being met. I had an expectation of physical health. It's not being met. These are all trials that the believer has to face. Everyone faces, but the believer specifically faces. And yet, J James says, count it all joy. So, so when we think about these trials, what does it cover? Sickness, loneliness, grief, disappointment, persecution for the faith. From the rest of the letter, it seems like James also includes financial, legal, religious troubles and trials. Basically, James has in view any trial that may threaten your faithfulness to Christ. You do realize everything I just listed, when those things, those expectations aren't met, it will make you doubt God. It has made me doubt God. It will make you question. Sometimes it can make you question, God, are you good? God, are you safe? God, can I trust you? James is going to get into that in a little bit, but most of us, if not all of us, we've gone through trials. Some of us are going through one right now, which by the way, this, is, this should be a call to us to be kind to each other. You have no idea what trials are being experienced by that person who's smiling in your face. You have no idea what's happening for the person who may be frowning and frustrated too. You have no idea what people are carrying. And remember, James isn't saying that the only response to trials is joy. There's room for sadness. There's room for crying out to God. Psalms gives us, us the scope for that. But, but what James is saying is that along with sadness and frustration and crying out and questioning is this joy that we should also be able to apprehend. So we still have the question then. All right, James makes the point that we should find joy in any and all of these trials. But the bigger question becomes how? How can anyone find joy in this? 
How can we find joy in real suffering? How can we find joy in the uncertainty that we face right now? How? Verse 3, he says, because, so he's given us the answer, right? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Wait, so, so, so why should we find joy in our, in our trials? Because trials are an opportunity to grow in steadfastness or perseverance in our faith. Now, this echoes some things Paul said in Romans 5, 3, right? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Peter uh, hits on this theme as well in 1 Peter 1, talking about how it refines the nature of trials to our faith. So, so there has always been this theme that somehow suffering and trials uh, in many ways, refine our ability to persevere and to stand strong and be steadfast in our faith. Now, look, when you read the history of Christianity, Christianity, uh, Christians throughout history, they're not strangers to suffering. But believers, right, have this uniquely Christian message that says, yeah, we are not exempt from suffering. We are not exempt from trials. We're not exempt from uncertainty, but the difference is we have somehow a, the power to respond to suffering differently. Why? Because we have hope. Not only a hope beyond the grave, because sometimes we'll look at that. I, well, I have hope, but my hope is going on the other side of eternity. But we have a sure hope now that God uses these trials to refine us. He, God uses trials to deepen our faith. He uses trials to make us more spiritually whole. Now, if we leave it there, I'm going to tell you right now, for me, I would hear this and I'm like, that's, that's great, but somehow that's still not compelling. Somehow that still leaves me going great. So the biggest thing is I get to suffer a lot of trials and it helps me last long. It just helps me deal with this for a really long time. Is that the big payoff? No. Verse 4 shows us endurance and steadfastness, it's not the end goal. That's not the end goal. The end goal isn't, congratulations, you can withstand torture a long time. For some Christians, they think that is, that's maturity, is to be able to just be a pincushion for a really long time. That's not at all what James is saying. That is not at all what God says. Read verse 4 again. And let endurance have its full effect. What's the full effect? So that you may be mature and complete. Lacking nothing, lacking nothing. The reason why I feel so frustrated with the suffering and the trials and the, and the difficulties of things that have happened or that haven't happened is because I'm lacking something. There's no question. And what do I do when I'm lacking something in my own sin nature? I'm going to do any and everything I can to, to compensate for the lack, right? To compensate for whatever is lacking, I'll do that. So somehow God is saying, that even in your trial, even in the suffering, even in the things that have been really hard, that have been heavy on your heart, there is something that's occurring that's going to allow you to grow, that's going to start to change you so that eventually, at some point in time, you will see that you are no longer lacking anything. There's this picture, the words that are used here, perfection and completion, those words simply mean fulfilling a goal or reaching an end. It's a picture that, that we would have. Uh, someone's in high school, they go through four years of school, and they graduate. They have finally completed. Somebody works in the military 20 years, and they can finally retire. For the believer, 
trials of any kind can have a purpose. Now, please hear me. I am not going to sit here and try to make sense of some horrific, ghastly things. I can't. Can't even do it for myself. All I know is what I'm seeing in the text and what God seems to be saying is that trials of any kind can have a purpose when we respond to them in the right way, with confidence in God and a determination to endure. They are often the express lanes of personal growth in our faith. Doesn't mean it feels good. Sometimes we misquote this passage, right? All things work for the good of those that are called uh, according to his purpose, right? That love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Oftentimes people will say all things are good. No, all things are not good, but all things somehow work together for your good when we love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. James is basically reiterating that yet again. This is the express lane of personal growth in our faith. And so in addition to that, y'all, this is, this is a big thing, an observation that I've made, I'm sure you've made as well. The reason why we struggle in our society to find joy in our trials is because we've reduced life to pure pleasure here and now. Only this life matters, and because only this life matters, I need to experience the most release, relief, pleasure now. Anything that takes away from, from my pain-free, self-determined life robs me. There's no value in suffering and no joy to be had. This is, for many of us, what has happened even during COVID right now. This is for many of us what's happened during this pandemic. It is a huge trial. As a church here at Icon, we have felt this in our own church, the desire to meet again. Look, before we stopped meeting, we had every Sunday planned out for 2020. We had everything planned out. We knew exactly what we were gonna do, what we expected to do, what we hoped to do in 2021. All of those things have been there, right? But the scripture makes it clear A man makes his plans, but God orders his steps. And we get reminded over and over again that it's great to make plans and it's great to have expectations, but they are always written in pencil. God, with his pen, says things are going to happen. You may not like them, but they are going to build and grow you and perfect you. And so sometimes we've got to use wisdom and make decisions that 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 are hard, that that don't actually meet uh, the, the expectation we had originally. Many of us have felt incredible loss through this pandemic, through the deaths of loved ones. Others may be dealing with loved ones who haven't died, but have experienced a lower degraded quality of life because of this virus. Disappointment, sadness, anxieties are being felt in ways none of us could have imagined. We're growing through having to make sacrifices for others while suspending our own desires for self-gratification and happiness. I was looking at an article that was talking about people's responses to this pandemic and, and what people have had to endure, what individuals have had to deal with, organizations, what churches have had to deal with, when you have to make decisions that you really don't wanna have to make, but for the greater good you have to make. And they, uh, the, the article was talking about dealing with disappointment uh, in this time. And the author quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, if you don't know, for those of you who don't know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was this German pastor during the rise of Nazism, during the rise and during the rule and reign of Adolf Hitler. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer eventually was able to escape during that time and escaped off to, uh, to New York and, and escaped to the United States, spent time teaching at a seminary, but spent so much of his spiritual formative life 
at a black church, very historically black church in New York. And it's interesting that he wrote at one point, the first time he truly understood the wholeness of the gospel was in this church. I didn't even intend to say this, but I find something really ironic there too, right? During World War II, or during the time that uh, Hitler was creating genocide against millions and millions of Jews and others, you know, Hitler had written that one of the ideas, the ways that he came up with uh, the ideas for the, how to treat Jews, he based that off of the way he saw America treat African Americans uh, here in this country. His, he got the template, the blueprint for how to treat and the language that should be used in order to dehumanize these Jews by looking at the way the United States dehumanized black people. And I think the irony is that what gave uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer the unction and the ability and the blueprint for how to live in the midst of suffering and disappointment was by living and living and preaching and embodying that with a group of black believers. And what did he do after that? He spent a little bit of time here and then he felt like, I have to go back. I have to go back. And what did he do? He was a part of the resistance against Adolf Hitler. He eventually was executed right before the war ended. He was executed by the Germans for his resistance to Hitler. And in, while he was in prison, he wrote a letter to his fiance Maria. So there he is in a Nazi prison, suffering for his own faith, truly, because he knew his faith meant, I have to stand up against this tyrant. I have to stand up against this horrific treatment of these people. He had freedom and he gave it up so that he could actually fight for real freedom. And here's what he wrote to his fiance. He said, God is forever upsetting our plans, but only in order to fulfill his own better plans through us. This is the picture of what it, of what it means to understand how to suffer. Listen, it's, you look at verse five, and this is why I think it tells on of this. You look at verse five and you look at what he says. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. What he's ultimately showing us here, and I'll tie this back to Bonhoeffer in a minute. We can't be wise by ourselves. We need God's help. We need his wisdom. There is no such thing as self-procured wisdom. You don't get to uh, curate wisdom for yourself and go, hey, everybody, I'm wise now. Now, experience brings a level of experiential wisdom. Don't get me wrong. But we need to make sure we understand our experiences in light of God's knowledge and wisdom first. So what does this mean? Wisdom does not equal knowledge. High test scores is not an indicator for wisdom. Wisdom in God's economy is knowing how to live God's way in God's world. How to live God's way in God's world. What does that mean? That means that I may not know how or why it happened. I may not know how or why it may or may not happen. Wisdom has nothing to do with that. God does not promise to give us every answer to our questions. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom isn't, I have all the answers, not in God's economy. Wisdom is how to live, persevere, and respond in the midst of it happening. That's wisdom. 
How do I live and persevere and respond in the midst of it happening? I may not know why it's happening. I may not know when it will end. But wisdom gives me, how do I then hold on to the things that are still true about God when the rest of the things around me, I have no idea what's happening? How do I hold on? How do I continue to believe in the attributes of God when my circumstances make me feel very doubtful? That's what wisdom is. This is why a child who calls out to God for help can be wiser than an adult depending on their own strength. This is why the poor person who gives generously, knowing God will provide for us, than, 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 uh, than us wiser than the stingy rich person depending in, uh, on their, uh, that depends on their bank balance. This is uh, why godliness in, in God's economy, godliness wins over cleverness. God's wisdom values compassion over knowledge. God's wisdom values generosity over financial advancement. God's wisdom values justice over intellectual achievement. You look at these last few verses and you start to see really what James is developing here. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Y'all, ultimately what James is telling us Doubts aren't wrong, right? You look throughout uh, the Old Testament, you see several examples where people are wondering, Lord, why? How long, oh Lord? What is happening right now? We're not sure. We're doubting. We're wondering if, if certain things are getting ready to happen. There's a difference between tethered doubt and untethered doubt. Doubts are okay as long as you stay tethered. What does that mean? What we just said. I, I can doubt certain things. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but the thing I have to hold on to is, God, you are good. God, you are just. God, you are holy. There are multiple attributes that you have. Lord, give me the wisdom and the ability to hold on and to cling to the things that are true about you right now. Sometimes that's all you have. I would love to see evidentiary things happening to make me go, oh, now I know I can trust you because I see this evidence in my life. But sometimes all we have are his attributes to cling to. All we have is, I might doubt this thing over here, and I'm still wondering what's going to happen, but I'm tethered to who God is. When you are untethered, and by that I mean, when you sometimes go, eh, I don't know that I believe that attribute about God, that's when double-mindedness happens. So he uses this picture of a ship, right? If a ship is, if you got a ship just sitting in the bay, they need to be anchored. Because if they're not, the moment any kind of wind happens, it'll start forcing that ship to drift away and you'll never get it back again. It might drift out, drift back, drift out, drift back. Why? Because it isn't tethered. We might drift, but we need to remain tethered. If we stay connected to who God is, we stay connected to these attributes, the trusting in him. God says, you trust me, you can ask for wisdom. You can boldly ask for wisdom. The only way you can boldly ask is you still have to trust God is going to give me wisdom. Not an answer to why this is happening, not an answer to when it will end, but he will give me the wisdom on how to live and react and respond and persevere in the midst of it. The call to ask God for wisdom to endure trials as joy should keep us humble. We are dependent upon God. So somehow, Trials can be viewed as joy when endured with steadfastness for the purpose of growing in our faith. And we need to ask for wisdom to do this. This also means, listen, for in a lot of ways right now, 
because there are a lot of things that give us reason for pause and reason for uncertainty, it is really popular to just be, to, to, to exercise untethered doubt. It's very popular in our deconstruction, that word again, in our deconstruction, we start deconstructing not only some of the institutional ways we may have understood God, but now we start deconstructing the very attributes of God. That becomes dangerous. The moment we deconstruct the very nature of God to the point where we no longer have a real clear view of who God is, even though he has revealed these things to us and he's expressed and shared these things about himself with us, you inevitably, I inevitably will be double-minded. I will not be able to have that faith that can rest and trust even in the midst of, of my doubts. And so that means I will be even more insecure. I will be even less whole. The irony is we think that by deconstructing everything, we'll become more whole. But more often than not, by deconstructing everything, you become less whole, you become less secure, and you actually add more anxiety. You actually add more uncertainty. You actually create a, 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 a larger ocean wherein you continue to drift untethered. That's why James starts with this. As we go through this series, James is going to keep showing us what does it mean to be spiritually whole? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? And it's very practical. And so as we close, I just want you to think about this. Answer this question. What areas in my life am I practicing either false certainty or untethered doubt? And what is it going to mean then for me to consider these uncertain places, some of these trials, some of these areas of suffering? Lord, what does it mean for me to be able to see this and begin to experience joy? Not because the things are happening, but to go, wow, God, you are doing something in me. You are shaping me. You are molding me. You are reorganizing things so that I will be more mature, so that I will be more fully formed, closer to that picture of completion and perfection that you promised to finish. That's what trusting God is. It's not just, I know everything and I know why it's happening and I'll have every answer. It just means I know somehow, some way, God is going to finish what he started. And that's exactly what he promises to do. So in with this, what it truly means to trust God doesn't mean having all the answers. It means trusting him to be who he claims to be. Trusting him to hold us in the midst of our uncertainty. Trusting him enough to remain tethered to him because he is not done with you. He is not done with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you invite us to come to you boldly. You invite us to come to you with our doubts. Father, it is a scary thing when we have doubts so much so that we no longer feel like we can come to you. God, I'm thankful that you invite us. You say, bring any and all doubts. We can come to you and ask boldly wisdom. Lord, in the midst of my doubts and in the midst of our doubts, will you give us the wisdom to be able to stand strong and be steadfast and hold on to your attributes? Hold on to who you are when we don't know who we are. Help us to hold on to who you are when we don't know what's going on. Father, give us a steadfastness, not to just be uh, uh, strong and unwavering on our own. Help us to be strong and steadfast in you, in you alone. I thank you for your love. Thank you for saying somehow this will bring a deep joy. We know it's not happiness, but we know you promise a real joy. Joy in what? Joy that we are being matured. Joy that we are being finished. 
God, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. Give us the wisdom and the faith to believe that you indeed will finish what you started. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And with that, let's receive this benediction. Let's receive this promise that God says he will do with us, through us, for us. Think about these words and think about what this God, the attributes of God on display here. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.